It's an honor to be here with you this morning. My name is Jason, and uh, I have known Dave for somewhat of 15 years now. He was an old youth leader of mine at a church in Temple, and then we've reconnected over the last few years, and so it's a privilege for me to be here, as I know they're traveling back uh, from being on mission trip uh, this morning uh, and for the rest of today. Let me begin by saying it's always an honor and a privilege to stand uh, where I know on a weekly basis uh, a man stands and faithfully proclaims the word of God to you, and so it's always an honor to stand in his shoes and his place and uh, and it's a blessing to be here. Uh, again, my name is Jason Johnson. I'm from uh, the Woodlands, Texas, which is uh, just outside of Houston. Uh, and uh, Dave has uh, so um, uh, uh, kindly uh, offered me the opportunity to come and be here with you this morning in his absence. I want to introduce uh, you to myself. And the best way I know how to do that is to introduce you to my, to my girls, my, uh, my estrogen club here that I roar with everywhere I go. Um, I live in a very pink home, and I love it. It's everything is the end of the world, right? It's all drama. Everything is the end of the world. Uh, and I love every second of it, mostly. So that's Macy. <laughs> Macy's the eight-year-old in the scarf. Next to her is Darby. She's four-year-old in the pink. Six-year-old, to step up, there is Presley. And then my beautiful wife, Emily, and uh, our uh, almost two-year-old, Marley. And it's really Marley's fault that I'm here with you this morning, and I'll explain why in, in a little bit. My job, essentially, is I work with a group called the Arrow Foundation, which was born out of Arrow Child and Family Ministries, which is one of the largest foster and adoption agencies, faith-based foster and adoption agencies in the state of Texas and really all across the country as well. And my job is essentially to advocate for the theology of adoption by producing gospel-centered resources, uh, speaking and teaching and engaging and equipping and mobilizing the church, the people of God, to not only celebrate the gospel in their own lives, but to demonstrate the gospel in the lives of the marginalized and the oppressed and the orphaned around them. So that's why I'm here this morning. I have an agenda with you. Agenda number one is that we would receive and celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ more fully and more deeply and more passionately and more affectionately in our own hearts. That's number one. It begins there. Number two, my agenda is that we would, we would prayerfully discern how God would have us celebrate the gospel by demonstrating it more widely and more fully and more vividly into the lives of marginalized and oppressed and orphaned kids just like Marley. So I want us to see this morning how the imagery of adoption is used to paint this vivid picture of God's rescuing and redeeming love of us. You cannot escape this illustration in Scripture. It's everywhere from the Old Testament to the New. That God is a Father who seeks after the rescue and redemption of His sons and His daughters. And through the work of Jesus, we now as those redeemed and bought by the blood of Jesus can call God Father. Scripture actually uses the language that we now have the right and the privilege to be called sons and daughters. Positionally, we now stand as beneficiaries of the privileges of being known and identified as sons and daughters of God. But it doesn't end there. In light of our adoption into the family of God through the work of Jesus, we now have the call and the responsibility to demonstrate that into the lives of the marginalized and the oppressed and the orphaned and the abused and the neglected around us. And so at the end of the day, as we read through Scripture, we cannot shake the truth that no one is called to do everything, but everyone is called to do something. And that our celebration of the gospel and our demonstration of that gospel are not mutually exclusive things. As a matter of fact, 
if we, if we cease to demonstrate the gospel, then our celebration of the gospel is in vain. And I know that Dave constantly preaches this, that they are one and the same. They are uh, the same side uh, of a two-sided coin. It's the same. When you flip it over, you get the same thing. That as we celebrate, we're called to demonstrate. And in our demonstration, we are ultimately celebrating what God has done for us. And as it pertains to the lives of the marginalized and the oppressed and the orphaned and the fatherless and the familyless and the abused and the neglected, we can't help shake the truth that not everyone's called to do, not no one's called to do everything, but everyone is called to do something in light of what Jesus has done for us. The gospel is consistently demonstrated and communicated as this multi-generational story of hope throughout Scripture. It's consistently demonstrated in this comprehensive, holistic way that something has happened to our past, something because of that has changed our present, and because of our present reality in the gospel, the future trajectory of our lives are altered forever. This comprehensive, holistic uh, understanding of the gospel is presented in this multi-generational way. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul, in some of the most vivid language used in Scripture to describe the multi-generational story of the gospel, begins this way. He says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under a law. So let's stop right there. This is ultimately Christmas. This is what we celebrate. The fullness of time had come, meaning at just the right time, God decided now is when I want to enter human history. And we look at Christmas and we think he was born into poverty and obscurity, into hostility, right? He was literally born with a death warrant on his back. Kings were threatened by him and they wanted him dead. This is the context. This is the moment in human history that God said in his providential sovereignty, now is when I want to come. Now is when I want to take on flesh and enter the brokenness of humanity in order to save and rescue and redeem them out of that. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. That's what we celebrate all year long. That at just the right time, God interceded on our behalf. You can sit in this room this morning and know that at just the right time throughout the course of all of human history, God interceded on behalf of broken humanity by sending Jesus. And you can bring that down home personally to you. And you can trust in the fact that at just the right time, God will intercede for you. And if we ever begin to doubt that, we only look to the manger at Christmas. If at just the right time, in the midst of brokenness, hostility, poverty, even obscurity, humility, all of these things, God decided that's when I want to intercede, then whatever it is that's going on in your life as well, right now, you can trust that God will intercede at just the right time. Most of us in this room have testimonies of that. Most of us in this room can, in hindsight, see our faith in action. We can look back and say, you know what? I can testify to the fact that at some point in my life, at just the right time, God interceded for me. At just the right time, God introduced me to that person who is exactly what I needed in that exact season of life to get me through exactly what I was going through. At just the right time, God interceded for me and gave me the opportunity to take that job. At just the right time, God interceded for me. And maybe for some of you, your story is this. At just the right time, God exposed my secret sin that was killing me. And in the end, he saved me as a result of it. At just the right time, God intercedes for his people. That's what he does. That's the MO of God. I mean, we could end right there. We could pack it up and and go home, forget the rest of the songs, the sermon. That's it. 
at just the right time, God intercedes for his people. That's what he does. And on that, Paul now begins to paint this vivid picture of what that looks like for us in this multi-generational story of the gospel that's being told in our own lives. He continues, at just the right time, God interceded for us, verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law. Past tense, we were under the law. In essence, our past has been dealt with. The darkness, the brokenness, the futility of our past has been dealt a decisive death blow in Jesus. It's gone. And for some of you this morning, that's all that you need to hear. Your past no longer defines you. Jesus has put it to death. And he continues on in verse 5 and says, that has been put to death and we have now received adoption of sons and daughters. And so he begins to paint this picture of God's rescuing and redeeming love of us in terms of our adoptive relationship between us and God as Father. Our past has been dealt with. This, this generational story of hope is beginning to play itself out. Your past is dealt with. It does not define you. It does not own you. It does not drive you. It does not identify you. You can look back on it now in hindsight and say, at just the right time, God interceded in my past, and it's gone. Some language that Paul uses elsewhere is very simple. He says, the old is gone, and the new is now come. And in verse 6, he demonstrates that. He says, because you are now sons or daughters, which is implied, you are now children of God. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Your past has been redeemed. You were once separated and orphaned from him, isolated from God. And now he has brought you into the family of God through the work of Jesus. Your present is now secure. To the extent, he goes real far in his description of this. He says, it's so It's so altered. Your present reality is so different from what your past used to be that you can now relate to God in very intimate and affectionate ways. This language of Abba, Father, is is a term that's used essentially best translated in our language as Daddy. And so here's the picture that Paul is painting. You were once isolated and orphaned in your sin, at odds with God, the creator of the universe at odds with him, at enmity with him, Scripture says. You were actually an object of his wrath, Ephesians says. That's harsh. I don't know to the full extent of what that means, but I do know it sounds bad. And Paul's painting this very vivid picture that you were at odds with God, but Jesus. Now, your enmity with God has been replaced with intimacy with him. You can actually refer to him as Abba, affectionate, intimate, daddy. It's the difference between my daughters coming to me in a very proper British accent. I don't know why it's got to be British. Calling me father, right? It just sounds more proper. It, it, it's not endearing. It's, it's not affectionate. It's, it doesn't seem like they really understand my relationship towards them. But instead, they call me daddy, which I love. I hope they always do. It may be a little odd when they're 40, but it, I still hope they still do, right? And they can come to me and they know, all four of them know, if they ever want anything, it's just daddy. And it's the the whimper, it's the look in the eye, and they got it, it's theirs, right? Why? Because that's the relationship that we have. We're not at odds with each other. And in those moments when, when it feels like we are, when I'm having to discipline them, they've been disobedient, or maybe I've wronged them and I need to repent and apologize towards them, I know that we're okay when they call me daddy again. I know that they're not, it's not lingering in their mind anymore. That they feel comfortable with me again. It's this affectionate term. Our past has been dealt with. 
Our present reality is now secure. He's our father, our daddy, our Abba. We experience the full benefits and privileges of being known and loved by him. We are beneficiaries of his compassion, of his protection, of his provision, always, at all times, right now. You need to know that. Some of you this morning simply need to believe that my past has been dealt with and my present reality with God is not one that is at odds with him, but is one that is intimate and affectionate with him. I can come to him with my things, with my stuff, with my junk. He loves that. That's what a good dad loves. A good dad loves when his children share things with him, no matter what it is. That's what a good dad does. Paul doesn't end there. He says not only has our past been dealt with, the present uh, reality of who we are has been shifted and altered, but the future trajectory of our lives has been changed for all of eternity. Verse 7. He says, you are no longer a slave. Your identity is no longer a slave, but your identity is now a son, a child. That is the mark on you, is you are owned by God. And if you are a son, then you are an heir through God. An heir is someone that is trusting in the promise now of what they will receive in the future. That's what an heir is. That the future trajectory of our lives in Jesus has been promised, sealed until the day of redemption, Scripture says. We've been given a deposit now, guaranteeing what is to come. The future trajectory of our lives is not empty, is not hopeless, but it's full of glory. That's what's promised to us. And so we can live now in this present security, knowing that whatever may come our way in this life, and a lot will, no matter how awful the news looks tonight, no matter what war is breaking out or what economic catastrophe is, is about to unfold, no matter the political discourse that's going on, we know that we are now sealed to the day of redemption, waiting for this glorious inheritance that's to come. And so whatever happens here now simply points us to and creates a deeper longing in us for the glory that's to come over and above the chaos in which we live in now. We are not a people without hope. We're not a people that are scared by the nightly news. We're not. It doesn't need to scare us because we know the end of the story and it's guaranteed for us. So some of you might be sitting there thinking, I thought this guy was going to talk about adoption. What's going on here? He's beating us over the head with the gospel. Yeah, because here's why. As we look out to care for the marginalized and the oppressed and the orphan and the abandoned and the, the abused in this world, the story of adoption doesn't begin with an orphan out there who needs a family. It first begins with the orphan in us that's been given one in Jesus. This is the framework and the foundation which ultimately sends us out and compels us to action on their behalf. That the work of Jesus on our behalf as we celebrate that, we do so by demonstrating that out into the lives of those around us. Orphan care begins not with a child out there that needs us, but with a child in us that needed Jesus and has been given everything that we need in him. And because of that, we are now compelled to demonstrate that into the lives of those around us. The gospel is not a fairy tale. We like to think that it is sometimes. And in the end, we'll live happily ever after. But it's chaotic and it's messy and it's dirty every step of the way. It's the story of Jesus interjecting himself at just the right time into the brokenness of humanity. That he would take on flesh and he would take on the brokenness of who we are. And he would ultimately carry that to the cross on our behalf. 
That's not a fairy tale. It's, it's a messy, chaotic, dirty story. And it's one that Jesus willingly and even joyfully embraced upon himself for our sake. That he would enter into the brokenness of our story in order to bring us a greater and more glorious one. And the evidences that we live in a broken, sin-scarred world are endless. You can watch the news tonight, and they're going to scare us about natural disasters and politics and economics and all of these different things. And all of us, unless we're oblivious, could say, here's, here's evidence that we live in a broken world. Here's evidence we live in a broken world. Here's evidence that we live in a broken world. It's everywhere. It's even in Scripture. A couple of interesting examples. Did you know that the fact that there are thorns on roses is evidence that the world is not as it should be? When you read back in Galatians, you see that after sin enters the picture, part of the curse is that as man is working the ground and tilling the soil, there will be thistles. The fact that you can't hold a rose without fear of being pricked by a thorn is evidence that the world is not as it should be. Interesting. Did you know that the fact that every one of us uh, who put on clothes this morning and walked out the door were reminded that the world is not as it should be? The fact that no one is sitting in here naked is a good thing but really is a bad thing. Because in the garden, Adam and Eve were naked and what? Unashamed. Sin enters the picture, and their immediate instinctual reaction is what? To cover themselves and hide themselves. The fact that we wear clothes is a daily reminder that the world is not as it should be, and it's in desperate need of redemption. And then when all of us tonight go home and take off our clothes to shower or bathe, we will again be reminded, this is not how it should be. I'm in, right? So it's a lose-lose either way, right? And it always points us back to the fact that we need a Redeemer. Among the undenied evidences that we live in a sin-scarred world, be it thorns on roses, be it the fact that we're wearing clothes, be it the fact that there's wars and disasters and all of these things, Scripture seems to point to this particular one that pains the heart of God most. Scripture seems to point to the plight of the orphans and the marginalized and the abused and the neglected and the hopeless and the helpless. These are the things that uniquely pain the heart of the Father. These are the, unique, the things that particularly pain the heart of God to the extent that he would assume this role upon himself as a protector and a provider for them. Deuteronomy chapter 10 says, God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Psalm 68.5, to go along with your psalm series, says that the father, of, the father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God and his holy habitation. God says that, look, we'll deal with the thorns on the roses later, and the whole clothes thing, we'll work that out. But what uniquely and particularly pains my heart in your current context is the plight of the orphans and the marginalized and the abused and the neglected to the extent that I will assume the role of father of the fatherless to them, that I will fight for their justice Because the injustice that comes down on them pains my heart. If I were to lock you in a room for 24 hours with a Bible and a pen and say, all that you're allowed to do is read the Bible and write down some consistent themes that seem to jump out at you from the very beginning to the very end, you'll come up with a lot of them. The grace of God, the mercy of God, the rebellion of man, all of these different things. One of the ones that will leap out to you most vividly on every single page is this. God secures and protects the rights of the helpless and the hopeless. It's what he does. God secures and protects the rights of the helpless and the hopeless, but it doesn't end there. We don't simply celebrate a God that secures and protects the rights of the helpless and the hopeless. It translates out further than that. That this is what God does, 
And he also commands us to do the same thing. What uniquely and particularly pains the heart of the Father should uniquely and particularly pain our hearts as well. And what uniquely and particularly drives the actions of God to secure and protect the rights of the helpless and the hopeless should uniquely and particularly drive our actions as well. That's why Psalm 82 says, you give justice to the weak and the fatherless. You maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16, you cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Let your life be marked by this, that you are seekers of justice and correctors of oppression. Why? Because that particularly pains the heart of God and it particularly drives the actions of God. And so it pains our heart and it drives us as well. I recently got to speak to a group of several hundred college students at Sam Houston State University. And in this ripe, very vulnerable age of 19, 20, 21, where they're making these lifelong decisions about what career will I pursue? What degree will I get? Who will I marry? Where will I? All of these things. The challenge on them was this. Why don't you major in being a corrector of oppression and a seeker of justice? And then whatever job you end up getting, just do the job well. So I am a teacher, but first I'm a corrector of oppression and a seeker of justice. And I teach. I'm a stay-at-home mom, but I am a corrector of oppression and a seeker of justice. And I raise my kids. I'm a corrector of oppression and a seeker of justice. I'm also in the army. I'm a corrector of oppression and a seeker of justice. I'm also a trash man that our lives would be marked by in the identity of who we are and what drives our hearts and what drives our actions would be the very things that drive the heart and the actions of God, that we are correctors of oppression and seekers of justice. You see, we care for orphans because we've been cared for by Jesus, that we seek to rescue those out of their plight because we are the rescued ones. And of all the measures by which our faith can be demonstrated, of all the measures by which our faith can be demonstrated, and there's a lot, Attending church, Bible study, small group, giving, praying, all of these things are spiritual disciplines that demonstrate our faith in God to Him and to those around us. But of all the measures by which our faith can be demonstrated, caring for orphans and the oppressed ranks among the highest and the purest. And in a passage that we've all heard, James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Here's what the writer of James says, that among all the means by which we can demonstrate our faith, caring for orphans ranks among the highest and the purest. That's what he says, that it is pure and it is undefiled before God. Why? Why would he hold that up as a litmus test for genuine faith? Why? Because it's one of the clearest and most tangible expressions of the gospel that this world will ever know. If the gospel is this multi-generational story of God adopting those who were isolated and orphaned from him into his family through the work of Jesus, entering their broken story and replacing it with a glorious one, altering their present realities and shifting the future trajectory of their lives forever. If this is the gospel in us, then that's the gospel through us into the lives of oppressed and marginalized and orphaned kids. That we can intercede into their broken past and we can bring them out of that and give them a secure present. And we can alter 
the trajectory of their lives forever in ways and opportunities that would have never been afforded to them had they continued to be raised in and grown up in the context in which they were born. Why would James hold that up as one of the purest and most undefiled forms and expressions of our faith? Because in all ways, it is a vivid expression and demonstration of the gospel and the work of Jesus in our own lives. It's this multi-generational story of hope that we can break past cycles that are plaguing kids. We can offer a new and redeemed present reality for them. And we can set them on a trajectory of hope and opportunity and love that they otherwise would never have been afforded. When I was nine years old, I learned that the man I had grown up calling dad was in fact not my biological dad. And the story began to unfold where my mom and my dad sat me down and explained to me uh, where I came from. And it, ans- it, 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 it brought up, as it would in a nine-year-old boy, a ton of questions, but it answered one. One that for nine years plagued me, and I was even asked about it by friends. And it was this, how come you look nothing like your dad? Well, now I know. Wasn't expecting this answer, but it makes sense now. And they began to tell me about the story and the context in which I was born with my mom and my uh, older sister, born into an abusive home, an abusive, adulterer, uh, alcoholic um, father. And the situation that my mom was in, having to salvage a marriage, but also protect two young kids at the same time, and the rock and the hard place that she was between, and the day that she finally decided the best thing, what's in the best interest of these kids, is to, is to rescue them from this, uh, this difficult situation. And the story begins to unfold. I was wholly unaware of. But I began to look at my dad now sitting in that room and considering just what it is that he took on when he married my mom. That he willingly married a woman eight years older than him, divorced with two young kids. She was 31, he was 23. Imagine being a 23-year-old single guy marrying a woman who's come from a very broken situation with two kids. And I look at my dad and I think, in marrying my mom, he also chose to take my hand and the hand of my older sister. He changed my name completely. I was born with one birth certificate. I have a completely new one, first, middle, and last name. Changed my identity. Changed my present reality. Changed the future trajectory of my life forever. I guarantee you I would not be standing here had my dad not interceded on my behalf when I was two years old. Guarantee it. Changed my name change the context in which I would be raised, change the future trajectory of my life forever. Since the day that I learned of that story, I have, I have had several opportunities where I was compelled to stop and consider in that moment, what would I be doing right now had my dad not interceded on my behalf? One of the most telling for me was the day that I married the girl of my dreams. And my dad's a pastor. He's been in ministry. He was a worship pastor in Temple for a long time, as a matter of fact, which is how I know Dave. We're standing at the altar. To my left is the woman of my dreams that I'm about to make my wife. And in front of us is my dad, the man who interceded on my behalf when I was two years old. And in this very surreal moment, I realize if it weren't for him in my life, I guarantee I wouldn't be marrying her. Guarantee it. I would not be the kind of man that the kind of woman she is would give a second thought had he not stepped in and changed everything about me. Guarantee it. As I watch my three daughters, like clockwork every two years, being born in the hospital, I stand in the hospital room, and I have this very surreal moment. 
It's already a surreal moment. But on top of that, I go into my own little world for a minute and I realize I probably wouldn't be here. I probably wouldn't be here. There's no way that a woman like that would marry a man like me had I been raised in the context in which I was born. Everything about this multi-generational story, this comprehensive shift in everything is what the gospel does. And it's the opportunity we have to step into the lives of kids and change everything. Two years ago, when a a three-day-old baby girl was dropped off at our home by Child Protective Services in Houston, she had cocaine in her system, and she's suddenly thrown into this, this broken system of child welfare. What do we do with these kids? And where are the homes that we can take these kids to try to rehabilitate biological family, give children a safe place to live, and hopefully reunify, and if not reunify, then find permanent homes for these kids forever? This little girl is dropped off in our home and I hold this three-day-old baby girl with cocaine in her system in my arms and in that moment, the brokenness of her story changed ours forever. And so we began this process of working with the court system and with biological mom and child protective services and, and every day, not a day has gone by in the last two years that we haven't watched her play with our daughters, that we haven't gone into her room at night while she's sleeping, that we haven't seen her with our small group playing or at church or on vacation on the beach, and we have not stopped stopped and stepped back and considered where would she be right now? What would she be doing right now had we not been given the opportunity to intercede on her behalf? Every night I go into her room and I check on her as any parent in the room does, make sure she's still breathing. She's got her passy. She's got a full belly, her favorite blanket. Every night, I think, what would she be doing right now? Where would she be sleeping right now had she been raised in the context in which she was born? What a privilege it is to intercede on her behalf. It's changed our family forever. Our three older daughters now, at times, rather than play Barbie or house or makeup or school or whatever it is that they do, get their face out of the iPad for a little bit, one of their favorite things to do is to play orphanage. They get all the babies, baby dolls from the house. They bring them down to the living room. They set up an orphanage in the living room, and they do so because they love to take care of babies that don't have mommies and daddies. This is what Marley has done to our family. It's altered them. It's shifted them. We begin to see the first fruits of, of a heart to be correctors of oppression and seekers of justice in our little girls. And I'm so excited to see how that blossoms as they grow. It's changed everything about us. In all of this, I think we're all forced to stop and we're compelled to consider. In the grand scheme of the gospel in our own lives, where would we be right now had Jesus not interceded on our behalf? I think all of us at some point can stop and pause and consider at moments in our life, where would I be right now had Jesus not interceded for me? I can guarantee most of us in this room would say, I wouldn't be in this room, right? Where would I be right now had Jesus not willingly entered the brokenness of my story, redeemed uh, broken past cycles, altered my present reality in which I now live, and set me on a trajectory in the future of hope and opportunity and passion and drive and desire and dreams and affections that I otherwise would never have had had he not changed everything? Where would we be right now had Jesus not interceded on my behalf? It's a question that we're all forced and compelled to consider. This is the great exchange of the gospel. Real quick, I want to give us three ways that we see in very vivid, vivid, tangible ways the gospel expressed 
through our care of orphans, and then we'll be done. Number one, orphan care is less about pulling a child out of a broken story, and it's more about us being pulled into one. This is what Jesus has done for us. Matthew chapter 1 says it this way, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call, call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. That God is not distant, but God is with us. God willingly entered into the brokenness of our story. He took our story upon himself, and in this great exchange of the gospel, he replaced it with something better. This is what he did. That he was compelled not to love from a distance, but to enter into our story, lower himself, humble himself, bear the weight of our brokenness on his shoulders, literally on the cross, so that we might know a greater and more glorious story. Our ideas about caring for orphans going into it, uh, in the beginning, were less aware of the story of the orphan. They were more aware of our own story. And so it went something like this. We would pull a child out of a broken story and bring them into a very comfortable suburban one in North Houston. Right? Look how awesome we're going to be. We are, we are so heroic. Look at us. Right? We were more aware of our own story. But as the process began to... Uh, unfold. And the deeper we got into it, we began to realize this is less about our story and it's more about hers. And about three months into the process, we sat down around our first deliberation table with lawyers, court officials, judge, all of these different CPS caseworkers and biological mom. And suddenly we see this is less about a child and it's more about the brokenness of the family in which this child came from. We see a biological mom, 31 years old, broken. Her world is devastated. There's addictions that she cannot get out from under and demons that are destroying her. And she begins to share with us that this is just the exact same thing that happened to her mom. And we begin to see this is generational brokenness playing itself out here. Demons that she can't get herself out from under. And it's in that moment that we realize caring for orphans is less about holding a cute little baby girl. And it's more about engaging into the brokenness in which that cute little baby girl was born. It's messy and it's dirty and it's chaotic, but this is exactly what Jesus has done for us. He pulled us out of a broken story by first joyfully thrusting himself into it, taking it upon himself and replacing it with something better. As you engage in the care of orphans, we must be aware of the fact that it is not just about a child. It's about the broken context in which that child came from. And if we're not willing to engage that, if we're not willing to understand that and embrace that as Jesus would, then we will always maintain this hero complex within ourselves. This false perspective that it's about our story and not theirs. That it's about us being the hero and rescuing rather than us being the servant and being pulled in wherever we need to be pulled into to bring hope and healing. Number two, orphan care is a deeply spiritual battle that demands we stand for justice at all costs. It is a deeply spiritual battle. It was trial day about 11 months into the fostering process, and it's the day that every, every foster parent, every biological parent waits for. This is the day that the judge is going to make his ruling as to who will retain rights over the child. The ideal is that biological family has rehabilitated and that reunification happens, but that's not always the case. And so there needs to be a family like yours or like mine they're willing to take a child so they don't get lost in a system of perpetual brokenness and thrown around and then aged out at the age of 18 and left to fend for themselves. And so we realize in this moment that this is, this is a big deal. 
a big deal that this now 11-month-old baby girl is wholly unaware of what's happening around her. She has no idea all that's gone on in her short life. And so we're in the courts, and my wife and I anticipate being silent spectators. We just assume that things will take place, and then we'll be informed by the lawyers after. So they bring biological mother up, and they all but terminate her rights and with a barrage of evidence against her, and everyone knew that that was coming. But now they usher biological father in. He's, he's bound in shackles and dressed in an orange jumpsuit because he was just brought from prison. This is the first time we've ever seen him. He's been incarcerated the whole, the whole time. But this is his day in court that he gets by law. And so they bring him before the judge and the lawyers, again, just uh, bring a barrage of evidence against him, demonstrating uh, his inability and his, his, his lack of capacity to care for a baby girl, namely given his pr- prison sentence. And so that was pretty clear, cut, and dry. It wasn't pretty. Uh, it was very ugly, very contentious, but right and noble and just at the same time. Then they call us before the stand. And they ask me to testify, which I was not expecting. So we walk up before the stand. Biological father is about three feet behind me, surrounded by security guards. He's about a 40-year-old man who spent his, uh, half of his life in prison. He's shackled and he's bound. There's no way he could touch me, but I'm pretty sure he could still destroy me just by breathing on me. I mean, he's just an angry man, and rightfully so. He's, there's just demons in his life that are just killing him, have destroyed him, and have led him to that place. I'm brought before the judge, and the judge asks me three questions. He says, are you the foster dad? Yes, sir, I am. Do you love this baby girl as if she were your own? Absolutely, from day one. It's been our privilege. And then he pauses and he hesitates and he looks down at his notes and he looks at me and I realize in that moment something significant was about to happen. And he asks me this question that I'll never forget. He says, do you believe that it's in the best interest of this child for the father's rights to be terminated? Now, mind you, he's standing three feet behind me. He's grumbling, he's cussing, he doesn't want to be there, he doesn't like what's happening. But in that moment, I have a responsibility. And the responsibility I have is to stand for justice for this little girl, is to pursue what is in her best interest, not my best interest, not his best interest, but what's in her best interest. This is a deeply spiritual battle that demands we stand for justice no matter what. So he says, do you believe it's in the best interest of the the child for the father's rights to be terminated? And in an unhesitating way, I say, yes, sir, I do. And in that moment, he makes his ruling. And she effectively becomes an orphan with literally, legally, no parents to her credit. And it was about a 10-second process for me in answering that question that I feel like taught me 10 years worth of uh, Scripture. And maybe some of you guys have been in situations like that. For the very first time, I realized what it meant for Jesus to be my advocate, to be my intercessor, to be my mediator between me and the judge. And Scripture paints this picture of Jesus standing before God the judge and the judge God asking him, do you believe it's in the best interest of Jason for the enemy's rights to be terminated? And will you willingly accept whatever costs or implications that brings upon you? And Jesus, in response to the judge, says, yes. I believe it's in the best interest of Jason for the rights of the enemy to be terminated. And so you think of Scripture like 1 John chapter 2. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation or the substitute for our sins. Timothy chapter 2, 1 Timothy. There's one God, one mediator between God and men. This is Jesus. That he stood between the judge and us. And he said, I take whatever it is that is necessary for them to be set free. Now mind you, in that moment of standing before the judge, the real enemy in this situation was not biological family. 
The real enemy in this whole spiritual battle is not humans. The real enemy is not flesh and blood, Paul says, but it's powers and principalities of darkness. It's spiritual authorities. The real enemy in that courtroom that day and the real enemy that had been involved in the lives of these families, which ultimately led to the removal of this child from her home. The real enemy in all of this is Satan, who seeks to steal and kill and destroy families and kids. The real enemy in this spiritual battle is Satan. As I stood before the judge, I didn't stand against biological father. I stood against Satan who wanted to steal and kill and destroy the life of this baby girl. And because Satan is the real enemy in orphan care, then by nature, Jesus is the ultimate and perfect hero. We are not. We may be doing heroic things, but only to the extent that they are pointing to the true and ultimate and better hero. Orphan care is an intensely spiritual battle that demands we stand for justice and we be correctors of oppression in all cases, no matter what, against a real enemy who wants to steal and kill and destroy the families. And then finally, I know we're going a couple minutes long. We enter broken stories. We stand for their justice. And we, number three, are called to lay down our lives for the sake of a child gaining what they don't, re- ha- what they don't already have. That we would willingly lose what we have so that they may gain what they don't have. This is the exchange of the gospel. This is the great exchange of the gospel. That our unrighteousness for his righteousness, our emptiness for his riches and glory, our sin for his forgiveness, all of these things, the great exchange of the gospel, that he joyfully and willingly lost his life so that we may receive life. And the call to do that in the lives of children is nonetheless the same. 2 Corinthians 8 says this of Jesus, that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That we were empty and he was full, he emptied himself so that we could become full. The call to care for orphans is the call to lay down our lives so that they might know life. The call to give whatever we have so that they may receive what they don't yet have, but what they desperately need. Jesus laid down the infinite value of his own life so that we might know the immeasurable worth of being fully loved by him. It's going to be costly. It demands that it's selfless. It's going to be painful at times. Orphan care is less about getting a child for our family, and it's more about giving our family for a child. Whatever that might mean, whatever costs we may incur, whatever the implications may be, For some of us, it's going to mean that we lose this ideal picture of what our family looks like. For some of us, it means that we have to forfeit our comfort for the sake of taking care of a kid who needs us. For us, very practically, it meant um, we had to get a bigger car. God, we were set, right? Man. Now it means that the house we bought for three kids suddenly feels a little tight with four. We were almost out of the diaper phase with our two-year-old at the time, and it's like, we got to start all over. Are you kidding me? Right? But as you begin to weigh these petty costs compared to the life of a child, there's one that always comes out more worth it. The child is always worth it. It's more about engaging in a broken story, being willing to stand for justice and be correctors of oppression in a very broken world 
having our hearts particularly pained by the very things which pains the heart of God, and having our lives be set in motion in the trajectories of who we are, in the passions, in the desires, in the dreams that we dream for our own lives, be wrapped up in being correctors of oppression and seekers of justice, not wrapped up in how soon can I retire and kick back. Let our lives be marked by the people around us that at some point in the future turn and look at us and say, I don't know where I would be right now had you not. I don't know where I would be right now had you not interceded in my life. Let that be the legacy that we leave. Let that be the dream that we dream. Rather than this is what I want for retirement, this is the comfort level that I want to achieve, this is the idealism that I want to begin to live in, let's begin to dream bigger dreams that explode all of that, shake all of that up. Let our lives be marked by the dreams which say, I want, I want to demonstrate this multi-generational story of the gospel in my own life into the lives of others. So that maybe one day, maybe one day, I might be a part of their story. When they step back and they're compelled to think, where would I be had he not? Where would I be had she not? Let's pray. So Father, we first celebrate the work of Jesus in our lives. We can't help but recognize that we would not be here right now had you not interceded in our lives. And I pray for that person in this room that for the first time is hearing this, that their past can be redeemed and their present reality can be secured and their future trajectory can be altered, that they don't have to be afraid of what's to come, but they can rest assured in the security and the benefits of being known as your son or your daughter. I pray that your Holy Spirit would breathe that deeply into their hearts. They would repent and come to know you by faith. Father, I pray for those of us in this room who know the gospel, who celebrate the gospel. We celebrate it in song. We celebrate it in in all of the different activities that we do, that we would be a people, that our celebration of the gospel does not terminate on us, but it is demonstrated into the lives of others around us, and that it would begin to alter everything about who we are, and that we would begin to see that when we count the costs, whatever cost we may incur are always worth it to see the story of the gospel perpetuated and continue to be told into the lives of others. Let that be our dream. Let that be what compels us, gets us up in the morning. May we be correctors of oppression and seekers of justice. It's in your name we pray.